0: What makes aerobic exercise so powerful is that it's our evolutionary method of generating that spark. It lights on fire on every level of your brain from stoking up the neuron's metabolic furnaces to forgiving the very structures that transmit information from one synapse to the next. And that's from John Rady, the author of Spark, The Revolutionary New Science of Exercise and the Brain. And in today's episode, I want us to dive a bit deeper beyond what I'll uncover with the research and look at this spark in our own lives. I want us to learn how to access this spark that John Rady talks about, how to generate that energy with this spark through exercise, and then figure out what we'll do with this spark or energy. Once we've learned to create it, to take ourselves to higher levels of achievement, all by using exercise and science to take us there. I want to welcome you back to the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, where we cover the science based evidence behind social and emotional learning for our schools and emotional intelligence training in the workplace with tools, ideas, and strategies that we can all use immediately with our brain in mind. I'm Andrea Samadhi, an author and an educator with a passion for learning, specifically on the topics of health, well-being, and productivity. And I launched this podcast almost four years ago to share how important an understanding of our brain is for our everyday life and results. For today's episode number 277, We're going back to another favorite episode of mine, number 122, on transforming the mind using athletics and neuroscience that we released back in April of 2021. After we interviewed Paul Zantarsky, he was that former PE teacher from Naperville Central High School who reinvented physical education using the understanding of simple neuroscience. In this previous episode, we combined what we learned from Paul Zantarsky with our interview with Dr. John Rady and his book Spark that cemented the idea of the profound impact that exercise has on our cognitive and mental health. For today's episode number 277, we'll go back to that episode on transforming our mind using athletics and neuroscience and see what's new with the research that might be able to take our understanding a bit deeper. I know that we're all clear on the fact that exercise creates that glorious protein called BDNF that we just reviewed thoroughly on episode 274, and even how this protein that's released when we exercise is reduced in the brain of someone who's developed Alzheimer's disease, showing us that exercise is an imminent solution for the prevention of cognitive decline or at least delaying this from happening for as long as we can. Which leads me to look deeper into the research on this topic, and I went straight to the work of neuroscientist and author Dr. Wendy Suzuki, whose TED Talk on the brain-changing effects of exercise has over 15 million views. I remember when her TED Talk came out back in 2017, and someone in my network sent it over to me and I immediately asked Dr. Suzuki to come on the podcast. After hearing what her schedule is like over the years and the research she's involved with as the incoming Dean of Arts and Science at NYU, I do understand now why I never did hear back from her on this request. Her TED Talk impacted me in a way where I knew I would need a focus on what she's discovered about the powerful effects of physical activity on on the brain, and that by simply moving our body, this has lasting protective benefits to the brain. Dr. Suzuki's TED Talk that came out years before we even looked at this topic on the benefits of exercise on the brain that we started to unwrap with our interview with Dr. Rady explains how she was at the height of her work as a leading researcher on memory in the brain when she stuck her head out of her lab and she realized she was lacking in social interaction and that she'd gained 25 pounds. She mentioned she was miserable and she launched her own exercise program, which is when she noticed things changing with her own brain. Not only did her mood improve and she felt stronger, but she started to notice that her difficult work grant writing, which I know takes more brain power and patience than most of us have available on a day-to-day basis. But she noticed this daunting task was surprisingly getting easier for her, and she stopped and thought, what's going on here? Could it possibly be my new exercise routine? I related to what she was saying on many levels, as I've spent quite a few years working on grant writing while also understanding there's no way I could ever sit at my desk and navigate through the research I need to do without a daily exercise routine. What about you? If you're listening to this episode and you've caught the fitness bug at some point in your life, I wonder what it was that inspired you to make physical activity a part of your daily routine. When I thought about it, I would have to go back years when I first noticed that exercise was something that just made me work better. I remember something clicked for me after high school when I was at university and I spent my summers lifeguarding to pay for that next year of school. In order to get the best pools as a lifeguard in the city of North York, where I grew up in Toronto, Canada, that were worth spending the entire summer at, there was this annual lifeguard triathlon And those who participated usually were given their first choice of the pool that they wanted to work at. It was one of those you'd better participate and then you knew you'd have a better chance at being happy with your work environment that summer. And for many of us living in Toronto, we live for those summer months poolside with those we connected the most with, with our social circles, and many of us, or maybe it was just me, spent the entire winter dreaming of this special time of year when the snow and ice melted and the summer breeze filled the air. So one year, I set my mind on winning this summer triathlon, and I started training for it in the winter. I joined the local YMCA, and I remember taking the bus from my house in Don Mills to the YMCA up to Shepherd and Bayview, which was at least a 30-minute bus ride. And I would train there with the vision that I'd have this fancy pool to work at with all my favorite friends while earning the money I needed to pay for university. As soon as the snow melted, I remember riding my bike or rollerblading to the Y. But it was those days training for this one event that summer That hooked me on being a regular daily exerciser for the rest of my life. An update on the triathlon that summer. I almost came in first if I didn't slip and fall on the pool deck before the run that was the final event. I was leading the whole race until my competitor, whose name I'll never forget, passed me in that last stretch towards the finish line when I had nothing left to give. Good for her, I think, today because she motivated me in future years to keep training. And while we both got the pools we wanted, I know her love of athletics stayed with her for her lifetime as well. Until revisiting this episode, I never really thought back to when I got that exercise bug since it's now become a non-negotiable part of my daily routine. When I heard Dr. Suzuki's story and learned about other people's motivation for starting an exercise program, I thought it might help those listening to reflect back on their own story. It's interesting to think back to what sparked us with this habit change and made it stick. And if this isn't a habit that you find interesting at all, I'm hoping something in this episode creates that spark for you to perhaps begin your own program with the health of your brain in mind. So here's where the research gets exciting. Dr. Suzuki mentions that exercise is the most transformative thing that you can do for your brain and listed some reasons that I think we've all heard of today. She notes that with one 45-minute exercise session, number one, your mood improves. Exercise has immediate effects on your brain. One single workout, she says, increases neurotransmitters like dopamine, serotonin, and noradrenaline that will increase your mood immediately. I think we can all agree on this one, and it's one of the main reasons I've kept up my daily routine. I'm not much fun without these neurotransmitters flowing in my brain. Number two your focus, attention, and even your reaction time improves. And that this improved focus can last up to two hours after you exercise. Now I'm starting to think because I know in order to do difficult cognitive work, like reading through PubMed or something like that, I have to tire myself out early. And the harder the workout, the better I can think and focus on difficult work. I remember telling Dr. Rady this in our interview, and he said that's one of the reasons that they had the students exercising before school to prime their brain for learning. But did you know this part? This is important. Before switching her work to the impacts of exercise in the brain, Dr. Suzuki was one of the world's leading researchers on memory. So, of course, as she began to look at the impact of exercise on the brain, she'd be looking at everything through the lens of a researcher who spent years looking at the hippocampus, the brain's memory center. It's her next points about how exercise improves our brain through her memory research that caught my attention. She adds, point three, exercise produces new brain cells in the hippocampus. And this increases the volume of your hippocampus, improving your long-term memory. And we've covered how to improve our memory with unique memory hacks on a few episodes on this podcast. One with episode 149, with our interview with Dave Farrow, the two-time Guinness World Record holder on focus, fatigue, and memory hacks. And then again on episode 217, on science-based tricks to improve productivity and never forget anything. But never once did we talk about the hippocampus, our brain's memory center, in these episodes. Now, Dr. Suzuki, a leading researcher on memory, exercise, in the brain, tells us that exercise can make this part of our brain responsible for our memory bigger. And with our brain, we all know that size matters. Point four, she says the more you exercise, the bigger and stronger your prefrontal cortex gets. So now we know that in addition to our memory center, our hippocampus that increases with exercise, we can also add the part of our brain that's responsible for decision making, for cognitive control. For attention and focus, this part also gets bigger with exercise. And Dr. Suzuki elaborates that these are the two areas of the brain most susceptible to neurodegenerative diseases and cognitive decline in aging. While Dr. Suzuki says that by increasing exercise over your lifetime, you're not going to cure Alzheimer's or dementia, but what you'll do is create the strongest, and largest prefrontal cortex, so it takes longer for the diseases to have an effect. The whole reason I spend all my spare time writing these podcast episodes, recording them, and putting them out to the world, for you, the listener, and for me as well to keep learning, is that I do believe that small changes that we can all make have the ability to completely transform our health, well-being, and life. Take, for example, the recent episode we did on the damaging impacts of sugar on the brain and body, where we covered two people who were measuring their blood sugar. The only reason I had the data for this episode was that someone close to me asked me for advice. One day, this person said to me, if I was to do just a couple of things to improve my health, what would you suggest I do? Now, this person rarely ever comes to me for advice, so when it happened, I took the moment seriously. I looked them directly in the eye, and like Dr. Jacoby said to me when I asked him the same question, I answered back without wavering, you need to cut out sugar, and that means anything that turns into sugar after you eat it, like the obvious candy— but add bread and alcohol, and then you gotta measure your blood to see exactly how things you're eating or putting in your mouth are affecting you personally. And then you never eat those things again that skyrocket your blood sugar. That was it. In 30 days, this person lowered their A1C levels from the danger zone of 8.5 to 7.0. Once the behavior changes, so do the results. We can potentially reverse diabetes and prediabetes with this advice. And I say that with full knowledge, I'm not a medical doctor. I'm quoting what Dr. Jacoby, my foot doctor, told me, and he swore that chronic disease is directly linked to lifestyle. Like Dr. Jacoby, I'm pretty militant about health. So my advice, if you want to make changes with your health, is to start with your own personal motivation for this change and then find someone who won't let you get away with reverting back to your old habits and behaviors so you'll stick to the changes that support your brain health. So back to Dr. Suzuki's research, she mentioned that she often gets asked, so what's the minimum amount of exercise that I'd need to do to get these changes in the brain? And here's what she suggests. Dr. Suzuki's research revealed that the minimum amount of exercise that you'd need to do to get these brain health benefits would be three to four days a week, 30 to 45 minutes a session of aerobic activity at an intensity that's enough to get your heart rate up. She says you don't have to go crazy, and I agree with her on this one. Here's something interesting that I learned this year. Since I measure everything, I learned that certain activities get my heart rate just as high as my runs up the mountain. Activities like walking outside, lighter workouts on the elliptical, or even vacuuming in the house all get my heart rate up into zone three, and that's 70 to 80 percent of my maximum heart rate, or what would be considered a moderate exercise level. This was shocking to me as I realized I could change up some of my activities and save time As long as I was able to get my heart rate up long enough for those brain benefits to take hold. 30 to 40 minute intervals. So now you can start to think creatively about aerobic activity. I recently noticed something while recording these podcast episodes. My WHOOP device started to log my activity of recording these podcasts as other. And each time I finished recording i get a notification, and I could see that with a 25-minute recording session, I was at 70-80% to 80% of my maximum heart rate, the same as a moderate exercise level, while recording. And I'm not saying that sitting and recording for 25 minutes can replace a workout, but it opened my eyes to how strenuous public speaking can be on the body. I remember hearing speaker and author Brendan Burchard talking about how speaking in public results in the same strain on his body as running a marathon each day. My whoop device was telling me the same story, and I've even noticed that when recording, I'm engaging muscles in my stomach to breathe, and it honestly feels like a workout session. If you look at a graph of a typical hiking session for me in the show notes where I'm running up and down a mountain, my heart rate pattern is similar to when I'm recording a podcast episode. And recording or speaking into the mic got me at 70 to 80% of my heart rate, which is zone three or moderate exercise level. And I do spend most of my hikes in zone four at 80 to 90% of my maximum heart rate kind of on the harder target zone side. So I'm not going to replace hiking with speaking, but it really did open my eyes to think creatively with how else I can get my heart rate up for 45-minute sessions with my brain in mind. So what else does Dr. Suzuki's research reveal? While I was looking up the benefits of exercise on our brain, I wanted to go a bit deeper into what the research reveals. And there were a few more important details that I learned from Dr. Suzuki. She was interviewed on Dr. Andrew Huberman's podcast on boosting attention and memory with science-based tools, where she gave Dr. Huberman an overview of the most important parts of her TED Talk that now informed the research she was doing on exercise in the brain through the lens of a leading researcher on memory. Dr. Suzuki reaffirmed some of what we already covered, that BDNF goes directly to our hippocampus and helps new brain cells grow, which is what we knew from Dr. Rady, who said that BDNF is like miracle grow for the brain. And it's from moving our muscles that this protein is created, helping us to improve our highest thought processes. But Dr. Huberman wanted to dive a bit deeper into where our memories are actually stored in our brain. And he asked... Isn't the hippocampus involved in encoding memories, but not with the storage of memories? Memory storage, he asked, was in the neocortex or other overlying areas in the brain. And Dr. Suzuki replies that he's asked a tricky question because memories are stored in the hippocampus for a very long time. While she elaborates that people really want to know, well, how long are they in the hippocampus before moving to the cortex? And she jokes maybe four years people want to know. Is that how long our memories are stored in our hippocampus? I don't need to be a neuroscientist to think that it doesn't matter how long our memories are stored in our hippocampus. But I want this part of my brain to be as healthy, as big and fluffy as she describes it, So I can remain as sharp as I can be as I'm aging. Not a day goes by that I go to grab a name of somebody and it's not there. So this part of the brain is a muscle that needs to be worked just as we're moving our bodies with exercise and working our muscles. Which led my mind back to the research that emerged with the hippocampus of those London cab drivers. I'm sure you've heard this story. It was this part of their brain that was significantly larger in London cab drivers due to the mental workout they get while navigating the 25,000 streets of London. So to review and conclude this episode, where we looked back at episode 122 on transforming the brain using athletics and neuroscience, I think we've got a few new details to help build this case for the importance of adding at least as a minimum four days a week of 45 minutes of moderate aerobic sessions to build a stronger, more resilient hippocampus to help improve our thinking, our decision-making, and our memory center, ensuring that neurodegenerative disease that could possibly come our way with age will at least be delayed. As we remember that brain size does matter, in the beginning of this episode, we spoke about a spark that exercise can create that it can help us to generate energy that we can use in our daily life. I mentioned where my spark began training for that annual lifeguard triathlon in Toronto to pay for university classes. And I wonder if you've incorporated exercise into your daily routine, what was it that inspired you to begin? What was it that kept this habit going for you? Have you noticed specific examples of how your exercise program has transformed your brain? Like Dr. Suzuki noticed with her grant writing getting easier, and I noticed with being able to sit for longer periods of time and be focused on higher cognitive work. Have you ever thought about what exercise was doing for your brain down to your memory center, how it makes it bigger and stronger and how it improves your prefrontal cortex and your decision-making? Were you aware of how you're building the size of your brain with exercise to at least prevent the onset of cognitive decline as we age? And I wonder if you aren't incorporating three to four days of aerobic activity lasting at least 30 to 45 minutes in your daily routine, does this research that shows how building a stronger, fluffier, more resilient hippocampus and prefrontal cortex, make you think about starting a routine? If the answer to this is yes, and you aren't sure where to begin, check out our episode on the top five health staples, where we covered how to get started with an exercise program as an Alzheimer's disease prevention strategy. Were you as surprised as I was about my WHOOP device picking up my heart rate while recording a podcast episode? showing us that we can get creative with how we increase our heart rate, like with vacuuming or with walking or any other activities where you don't need to go crazy to get your heart rate up. Can you think of some new and creative ways to start to move your body that could help your brain and cognition now that you've seen this research? Once you do begin this regular daily routine, I promise you that you'll start to feel better. Like with cutting out sugar, you'll notice immediate changes in your body, mentally and physically, and you'll start to notice that you'll have more creative energy that you can direct in many different places. I promise you that this decision will spark something within you that could possibly be the turning point that you need to change your life forever. Since I feel so strongly about health and wellness for all of us, I want to extend an offer to you. If you're listening to this episode and you want to make an improvement with your health and wellness and you're stuck, unsure of where to begin, send me an email to Andrea at AchieveIt360.com and let me know where you're starting from. This is just me here offering you a bit of time if you're feeling stuck in some way without having to worry if I'll be selling you some sort of coaching program. Sometimes in order to get started, we just have to make the decision, and talking to someone, even for a few minutes, could be all you'll need to spark some action on your end. If this is where you're sitting right now, don't hesitate to reach out to me. And I'll close out this episode with a quote from Dr. John Rady, who said that exercise is the single best thing you can do for your brain in terms of mood, memory, and learning, And I'm going to add that it's the best thing we can do for ourselves as we age to supercharge our hippocampus, our memory center, and our prefrontal cortex, what we need to think and build a stronger, more resilient brain so it will take longer for these degenerative diseases that we all know about to have an effect. And with that, I'll make a promise back to you that I'll keep thinking up new ideas to share with you here because I know now that writing and recording is good for my brain. And I'll see you next week as we go into episode 124 on how to be a neuroscience researcher. And looking back at this episode, I'll have to think hard on how to make this one a bit more creative. See you next week.